Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and since last month's podcast brought us to the end of season one, I wanted to wrap up the first season and put a nice bow on it. So I asked Jack Seabrook, author of the Hitchcock Project blog, as well as other things, to join me, and he has graciously consented. Jack is a familiar name to anyone who listens regularly to this podcast because I reference and quote his terrific blog frequently. So thank you, Jack, for agreeing to do this. And I'd actually like to start with the other things that you write because you have other blog topics and you've also published some books, right? Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be doing this. I'm, I've been very excited at the prospect of doing this podcast. I and my, my writing partner, Peter Infantino, we write the Bare Bones e-zine blog, and every Monday we have a post about comic books. Currently, for the last few years, we've been doing two alternating series, one on Batman comics from the 1980s, where each week we do another month. And then the other Monday we do uh, the Warren comics from the 60s and 70s. We're mired in the mid-70s right now. And then every other Thursday, I have a Hitchcock post come up. They've been coming up since about 2012, I think, was when I started Hitchcock stuff. So the Warren stuff is uh, creepy and eerie and Vampirella and things like that, right? Yeah, and The Spirit, which is a little more oh, okay. superhero-type comic. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you have some books that you've written. I know, actually, I bought one. I bought uh, Stealing Through Time on the writings of Jack Finney. Oh, great. Yeah. But you also wrote one about Frederick Brown, right? Yeah, I wrote a book called Martians and Misplaced Clues that came out in 1993, which was sort of a literary biography of Frederick Brown, the um, detective and science fiction writer. And then my wife and I wrote a local history book that came out in 99, maybe. And then the Finney book, basically I wrote because I couldn't find much about Jack Finney, so I wanted to learn more and research it and that led to that book, which came out in 2003. I haven't written any books since then. I've written in the last five or 10 years, I've written a lot of chapters and introductions to books and articles for magazines and things like that. But the uh, blog has basically taken all my writing time for the last 10 years or so. I can identify. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast has taken all my writing time. The, the Jack Finney book was particularly interesting to me because you cover pretty much everything he wrote. I'm not sure how you found some of these things. I mean, some of these things are very hard to come by. I think um, something near and dear to your heart, the, the Trenton, New Jersey Library, which is kind of an old inner city library. And I was doing this back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and they still had bound volumes of things like Good Housekeeping and McCall's from the 40s and 50s and I would take my lunch break I lived I, I worked maybe 15 minutes from Trenton and drive down there as fast as I could and and photocopy another story or two and drive back to work and that's how I found most of them nowadays a lot of it is online if you dig around hard enough but at that time you had to go dig through the dusty old bound copies at the library so that sort of brings me to the stories for the Hitchcock shows. You have decided to do your blog through the avenue of the writers. Right. Is there a particular reason why you decided to do that? Yeah, um, it started out 
because I did the Frederick Brown book and I met Peter Infantino who was doing another blog called A Thriller A Day about the TV show Thriller. And we got talking back and forth online and he invited me to write for the Bare Bones blog. And I decided to write something about Frederick Brown because I had gotten some more, some more rare material since I'd done the book that I wanted to write about. And then just casting around for something else to write about, I thought, what about a series of Frederick Brown on TV, TV shows that adapted his stories or novels. So I did that series and the first maybe four of them were Hitchcock shows. And when I finished that, I thought, you know, that was pretty fun. I'd like to do someone else. So I did a series on Robert Block, which there were quite a few. And then I thought, you know, this is a pretty good avenue into it because I didn't want to do it chronologically the way you're doing it because I thought I would get bored and doing yeah. it by writers seemed, especially at the beginning, it was more fun because I could do the writers who wrote the stories and group them and go through them like Ray Bradbury and John Collier. And, but eventually I found that I run out of the story writers to group it by and I had to do it by the teleplay writers, which mm -hmm. is a little bit different, but I've, I've learned a lot too from doing that. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to dig up the stories. So yeah, once that again, be a real challenge. Yeah, yeah, um, I'm finding that out too. In fact, there was one, um, a place of shadows, where I relied on your blog to read the story. I actually was fooling around on my phone last night, and I found that issue of Crack Detective is available to read for free online. There are some sites that are putting up entire pulps that you can read online and digest, but a lot of them. Um, Peter, my writing partner, has a huge collection of digests, but some of them I've had to go pretty far to actually find them. And, and I've met new people that way in different countries who will have a copy. Some of the hardest ones to find are the British digests, like John Creasy Mystery Magazine or mm -hmm. London Mystery Magazine. And there's a guy, he's actually a, a fairly famous researcher and writer named Mike Ashley, who I met because he was the only person on the planet who I could find who had a copy of one of the digests that had a story that was adapted for the show. So it's, it's a fun way to meet people too. One of the neat things every once in a while, I've been able to meet somebody online, usually by email, who was somehow either involved in the show or related to someone in the show. And that's really cool. I, I got an email from, I think her name was Susan Silo, an actress who was yeah, like in her 20s when she was on the show in the late 50s and now she's obviously much older but she emailed me and i was able to email back and forth with amanda cockrell who's the mm. daughter of francis and marion cockrell and she sent me some family photos and some things and and i got in touch with i think it was emily neff's daughter yes I, reached out to her and it, like a year later she responded and sent me stuff about her mother and that's always exciting i wish i could do that for more people there's a writer named william fay who i got in touch with a lawyer who i thought was his son and we went back and forth quite a bit and it turned out it was a different william fay who was also a writer yeah. And had been a sports, a famous sports writer, but this William Fay was not that William Fay. And I haven't been able to 
find any of his offspring, although he had quite a few of them. But that's always very exciting to me. Yeah, so you were saying that you don't have to get stuck in the rut of doing them in chronological order. And it is getting sort of stuck in a rut to some extent, because there are episodes that are just killers. (laughs) And and I try to be very positive about all of them. And I try to give all the information, but there are some that just don't do it for me. But I'm bound to determine to go in sequence. Um, Once you set out to do it, you have to do it. But I don't know about you, but I find sometimes when I sit down and watch it the first, I mean, I've seen them all before, but when I sit down and watch it to write about it, usually watch it with my wife. And sometimes I'm like, eh, that wasn't such a good one. And then I go and watch it a second time to take notes on it for what I'm going to write about. And I like it better. Sometimes the second time through, I see more things that I missed the first time. Yeah, I have had that happen. I've also had ones that just never get any better for me. But <laughs> uh, yeah, and well, the one for me is the babysitter. There's um, also when uh, when it switches to an hour, the first season of the hour episodes, there's some real dogs. I think they had a real hard time figuring out what to do at first. I've seen all the hour episodes. There actually are some in the later seasons of the half hours that I have not seen. And since I'm just finishing season one, I don't really have to rush out to see them. And then there's other ones that I've seen that I don't really remember that well. So you're actually in a better situation right now to say how season one compares to like the later seasons. I was thinking about that. I think season one is very strong. It's very interesting to me that they got Hitchcock to do it in the first place. And I think this is really him at his peak by 1955. He's about at the peak of his his career. He's just a tremendous filmmaker at that point. And they got him to do this. And I feel like CBS might have been thinking this was a replacement for suspense because suspense had been on the radio all those years and then it had been on TV for many years. And then it ends a year before Alfred Hitchcock Presents starts. And I feel like it kind of took the place of suspense for CBS. And because it's filmed, it's just so high quality and they've got such talented people working on it. I mean, from the actors, the directors, the writers, I think. And as far as comparing it to other seasons, it's as you go through the seasons of especially the half hour episodes, you see a different focus. I think you kind of get to a height, maybe around season four, season five, where they're really, really firing on all cylinders. And then when it switches to NBC, I don't know if they cut the budget, but it seems to get a little bit less quality. Although at the very end of season seven, there's some real interesting stuff going on. Hmm. Okay. You have Roald Dahl coming in as a writer, based on his stories anyway, that you don't have in like the first season. So you have people like that coming in. But at the same time, I guess my question is about the writing itself, whether they can maintain that. You have to do 39 episodes a season. And you can already sort of see in season one that there's an uneven amount of good stories. You know, does it maintain that level throughout or do they run out of good suspense stories to tell? I don't think so. I think they they actually get better. I think season one is such a mix of adapting short stories, adapting radio plays, adapting um, live TV stories. 
I think they were just dragging in whatever they could find. And then I think in either late in season one or early in season two, they launched the magazine, the Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, which was basically a tie-in with the TV show. And that gave them a lot of stories just to pull from. And they start pulling from those quite considerably and more and more as the series goes on. But I think that, as you said, people like Roald Dahl and Ray Bradbury, even though he is in the first season, they adapt some really great stories. They start adapting like the stories that would win for best story of the year. They, they often are in there and, and some classic stories and very good mystery writers. But I think by the last couple seasons on NBC, most of it is being pulled from the Hitchcock Digest. And there's a lot of Henry Slesser who comes in maybe season three or four, I forget. He starts writing, you know, a large number of the episodes. So it's it's a little different, but I think I think season one is very strong just overall. Yeah, I think so too, overall. And you have four episodes directed by Hitchcock in season one. Yeah, and they're just tremendous. I mean, I think Robert Stevens is fantastic as a director, and I think he's he's really the the main director of the series but every time i watch one of the hitchcock episodes and really study it it's just amazing to me how far beyond any other director who worked on the series hitchcock was able to go and it looks effortless yeah i know you haven't done all the first season episodes in your blog but you've seen them all right yes i've seen them all more than once okay do you have like a top five for the first season oh boy that's tough well i think revenge the first one. I don't know. I'd have to go through, but I think I don't. it would be hard to cut it to five. I think Revenge is great. I think Premonition, the second episode, is great. Breakdown is classic just for the, the filmmaking. There's an episode called You Got to Have Luck, which I think you also focused on. Yes. I think Place of Shadows is very cool. I really like the um, the snow in that episode and driving mm -hmm. through the snow. I like the whole notion of that, just of uh, the law versus religion. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah. And I like I like Everett Sloan. He's in a couple episodes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's terrific. Yeah. Anytime John Williams is in it, it's going to be a top episode for me. Um, there Was an Old Woman with Estelle mm -hmm. Winwood and Charles Bronson, I think, is, is real good. The two episodes with John Quaylen. Help Wanted is one of mm -hmm. them. I forget which the other is. He's in um, uh, A Bullet for Baldwin. Yeah, I think both of those are real good. And then The Creeper. I like The Creeper, so I know that's more than five. Yeah, yeah. Pretty strong group. It is a very strong group. Yeah, I was thinking about the five for me, and I would say I would pick three of the Hitchcock-directed episodes, Revenge, Breakdown, and Back for Christmas. Back for Christmas, I think, might be my favorite of the whole season. Wow. And then I really like You Got to Have Luck. And I actually also really like Never Again. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that would be my five. I think as, as the series goes on, Phyllis Thaxter really becomes one of the strongest actors in the series. She's in quite a few of them, and she's always terrific. I was just thinking, what could we talk about for the first season? One of the things I was thinking about was what would you say is one of the strongest acting performances of the season? And I would go with Phyllis Thaxter in Never Again. Yeah, that's definitely fair. And I mean, you say that, I, I, my head goes right to John Cassavetes and you got to yes. have luck. Yeah. 
it's a typical Cassavetti's performance if you've seen mm-hmm. his other things. But <laughs> yes, it's great nonetheless. And and also I like, and this is something I like throughout the series, are the kind of quirky characters and actors. Like I said, Estelle Winwood mm-hmm. and John Quaylen and John Williams, I guess some people might find him quirky. But those are real good. I also like the derelicts with Robert Newton. That's yeah. a really cool episode. As I look through the notes, I just see these names, Claude Rains. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. It's. It, I was thinking how it was interesting as far as tie-ins, how the series at the beginning is sort of a tie-in in a couple ways to what Hitchcock was doing in the big screen because Revenge, the first episode, you got Vera Miles, mm-hmm. who was his discovery, who, if I remember the story right, he was grooming her to be the next Grace Kelly, but she got pregnant and he got mad at her. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she was going to be Kim Novak's part in Vertigo. Oh, wow. And then um, Premonition, the second episode, has John Forsythe and The Trouble with Harry had premiered just about a week before that episode aired. Right. So that's another tie-in to his films. And then the third one is The Case of Mr. Pelham, think it is where the one of the end credits says tom Ewell was currently appearing in um the movie with marilyn monroe wasn't a hitchcock seven year itch seven year itch right yeah yeah i think that was an attempt because we know television shows were the poor stepchild at that time and i think these were all attempts to give them some polish and make them seem more respectable than they might actually be yeah so you have As you said, you have some people who are Hitchcock regulars to some extent. You also had, besides the ones you met, you have Joseph Cotton. And then you have other people that were just established movie stars, some of whom are not all that well remembered anymore, but someone like Claire Trevor. And then you have the people who were up and coming, who in some cases don't even get their name on the top of the title in the credit. And those are people like Charles Bronson. So it is this really interesting mix. And you also have actors that again, have been forgotten to some extent, like Joe Van Fleet, who was, I think, had either just won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress or was going to win it that year. So she appears at a time that she's really like the height of her career. I make a point of that at different times in the podcast to say, well, this person you may not even have heard of now, but they were a pretty big deal for a while there. Um, And then they're on this show. And again, John Williams, I left out the, some people say the the quintessential Hitchcock actor. Yes, yeah. And then other people that never really got completely over the top so that they became movie stars, but are still very good established actors of the 50s and 60s. People like Joe Mantell. So, yeah, good point. And so you know it's, Thelma Ritter. Thelma that's right. In, uh, yep. Your yeah. least favorite episode. <laughs> my, least, my least favorite episode. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. You're very down on Jack Mullaney. Oh, he seems to me like a, a Jerry Lewis ripoff, a sort of yeah. bar- bargain basement Jerry Lewis. And in those two episodes, I guess it's Never Again. What was he in three? Never Again. Yeah, he's in three. Um, the Belfry and the one where they're in the radio station. Yeah, that's uh, Decoy. Yeah. I think he's just dreadful in all of them. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think he came to a bad end in real life, but he did. That yeah, doesn't make his performances any better or any more yeah. tolerable. And he really did become a comic actor. 
much more. I mean, later, if he's known for anything, he's known for being in sitcoms in the 60s. Oh, really? Um, oh, it's about, was he in It's About Time? It's About Time. He was in um, My Living Doll with Julie okay. Newmar. Okay. But yeah, I actually thought you were too hard on him for The Belfry and for Never Again, but I thought he was terrible in Decoy. I was right beside you on that one. That's so, a strange uh, episode. That's the one where Frank Gorshin pops in for just a second. <laughs> That's right. It's actually on IMDb. It's his first credited role. Wow. So, so that's and another it, great example of people that were just starting out that appear in the show yeah, that become I, better known later on. I was three years old when the Batman TV show premiered. So I was right in the middle of Batmania from 66 to 68. And Frank Gorshin will always have a place in my heart as the Riddler. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm older than you. Uh, I was, in, I was okay. in elementary school okay. during the Batman time and I feel the same way. So yeah, I, you know, I had to use a, a big Riddler clip when I did that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, well, is there anything else in season one that you would like to mention? Or even just well, like Hitchcock's intros, we haven't really even talked about those at all. Well, when I started doing the articles on the series, I decided I was basically going to ignore the intros unless there was something in there that tied into the actual episode or the story that, that I thought was worth mentioning. Because and this goes back a little to the book, The Twilight Zone Companion. I think that was the first time somebody had written a book just about a series in depth. And he made the decision to reproduce all of Rod Serling's introductions and concluding remarks. And so that became kind of the standard way to do those companion books. And then the, uh, the Grahams and Wickstrom book has the openings and closings for, of Hitchcock. And I think as a result, there's been a lot of focus on those and less focus on the stories, which is part of why I wanted to focus on the stories when I wrote about it, because it seems like a lot of people just remember the show for Hitchcock getting in yeah. and saying his funny things. And they're great. They're very entertaining. But I think it's taken away a lot of focus on what are some real quality stories and short films. And so unless something pops up in the opening, I mean, there's one where he's reading a paperback book that I've noticed occasionally in the series, the same paperback with the same cover will pop up in an episode usually with a different title, but it's the same picture on the cover. And yeah, yeah, I've read that in your blogs. I wouldn't, yeah. I don't know if I'd have noticed that, yeah. And it's fun, it's the great thing about having them on DVDs because you can pause them and fast forward and zoom in and clip a screenshot of that and expand it and actually see things that the viewers in the 50s and the 60s would have no idea that they ever saw and that right. the people making this show never intended anyone to pay any attention to. Right. Like some of the newspapers that show up in different episodes, they have the same side headlines of some of the, right. you know, because they just used the same newspaper. They slapped a different headline on. They didn't figure it was on screen long enough for people to notice. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure no, they never thought we'd be here 50, 60, 70 years later studying these things the way yeah. we are. They probably would have thought we're crazy. <laughs> and maybe we are. So let's just broaden this out just a little bit then. Talk about his movies just for a bit. Do you have a favorite Hitchcock movie? Oh, yeah. Well, it's a tie between Rear Window and North by Northwest. 
I go back and forth. When you say that, my gut is rear window, but I also love North by Northwest. And then there's probably five or 10 more I'd put right behind those. What about you? Yeah, I rear window is the one I usually end up mentioning. I do like the grittier things like Psycho, and I do like Strangers on a Train quite a bit, and also North by Northwest and Vertigo. That whole period in the 50s when the show is going on is generally quite good. I don't think people nowadays remember how hard it was to see those five color films that he made in the 50s because he pulled them from circulation for a couple decades, I think. And I remember in maybe 1982 or 83 around there, they re-released them after they hadn't been available to see since probably the 60s, I would imagine. And it was just such a thrill to see Rear Window and Vertigo and these things that you'd read about in the Truffaut book and the Donald Spoto book for years and just had never been able to see. Yes, and they released them in the theaters, so you saw them on the big screen. And they released them a bit at a time. They didn't throw them all out at once. Right. So I think they started with Rear Window, and then a couple months later, they put out, I think, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and so on. But yes, I remember that well. It was quite a thrill. Those are Um, such great movies. And I have a soft spot for Family Plot, um, probably because I think it's the first one I saw in a theater first run. When I was old enough to go see it, uh-huh. I was uh, I was too young to see Frenzy when it came out, but Family Plot. I remember going and seeing it first run, and I just always liked it. I know it's not that well thought of now. Yeah, no, I like it too. Actually, I felt like I had pretty much seen all of the films. There's some very early ones that I think I haven't seen, but Waltz I realized from Vienna. I have not seen Waltz's from Vienna. <laughs> And I don't think I've seen The Skin Game. There's a couple others back there. I'll get to them because I've been putting the movies in bit by bit as well. But I realized recently that the three post-Marnie films, Torn Curtain, Topaz, and Frenzy, I had seen all of them very long ago and really remembered very little about them. And Torn Curtain and Topaz do not have good reputations. So I sat down just in the last couple of months and I watched all three of those films and each in their own way, I thought were quite good. So I always liked Torn Curtain quite a bit and I like Frenzy. I think it might be a little overrated. And I, I think the only time I saw Topaz, I, I, I thought it was a little boring. Well, it has it has its moments, but it also has some really wonderful Hitchcock moments that just huh. I mean, we're way off the subject of the of the TV show now. But there's a moment in it where one of the characters is killed. It's a woman. And I'm ruining it for you in case you want to watch it again. Um, oh, I will. And, and she's wearing a red dress and there's a camera shot from up above as she falls and the dress spills out almost like a flower opening or like blood spilling out all around her. It's really an amazing shot. I saw that and I said, this alone makes this movie worth seeing. That that reminds me, Hitchcock supposedly was the one who thought to put Vivian Lee in a red dress in the scene in Gone with the Wind, where the camera pulls up way high and you see her walking around the battlefield Uh looking, I think, I guess she's looking for Ashley Wilkes. But Hitchcock said, put her in a red dress. That way the audience will see her in the the long shot and know where she is. Wow. Okay. Huh. I'll have to watch Topaz again. Yeah. Yeah. Just for that one shot. 
I mean, it has other good things in it. It definitely does. I, I think I, Marnie uh, is an excellent film. I really, but then in my adult years, I've come to really appreciate Tippi Hedren. Yes. <laughs> she's, uh, she's very good. We've sort of wandered away from the first season, but yeah. it sounds like we've said a lot of what we wanted to say. Just going back to your other stuff, the Batman in the 80s, is that like a particular time that you're especially fond of with Batman or... No, not at all. We had done Batman in the 70s, which took oh, okay. few, several right. years, and we finished that, and that was Peter's idea, and I was all on board because I really loved reading that, the uh, the Neil Adams era and the Marshall Rogers era, and then we were casting around for something to do, and I said, why don't we do the 80s, because I had never read the 80s. I gave up reading comics essentially in the late 70s when I started paying attention to girls instead. <laughs> so that's that's how we picked that. Okay. Recently, I've been reading the new ones, the current Batmans, and it's really striking how good they are. The art is really, really good, and the stories are much more adult than they used to be. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So just to go back to the other stuff a little bit, generally speaking, with like writing about Jack Finney and so on, these are all your interests. But do you think that there is a connection so that somebody who likes Alfred Hitchcock Presents would like to read Jack Finney or would like to? Well, the Warren books are very much sort of like an offshoot of EC. And EC is, to some extent, part of that whole Hitchcock time. But Jack Finney in particular, is there like any, you know, you say, well, you're a Hitchcock fan, you'll like this, or? Yeah, I, I, I really do. I think Jack Finney today is known mainly for two things, for writing Invasion of the Body Snatchers and for writing a book called Time and Again, which is, you could probably call it a, a cult favorite. A lot of people love Time and Again. And years ago, they used to give walking tours in New York City of the sites in the book. It's a wonderful book about a man who is able to go back in time and falls in love with a woman from the 1800s. But also the Finney short stories, he's best known for his, I guess you would call them science fiction and fantasy stories, but they're not hard science fiction at all. I think that people would like them if they like the Hitchcock Presents stuff because there's often a twist ending, there are interesting characters, they're very well written. And in doing the book, I learned that he not only wrote those kind of stories, he also wrote some crime and mystery stories in the 50s that are worth looking up. They haven't been collected, so they're a little bit harder to find, but they're worth looking for. And vice versa, people that like Jack Finney would like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah, I think so, because Hitchcock Presents, I think, is all about the stories and the way the short stories are translated to the screen. And there's always been a lot of focus on the twist endings as being the point of the show, but I think you and I would probably agree that really delving into them, the twist endings a lot of times are beside the point. Yeah, I would agree with that. Though there are a couple of twist endings that knock me out of my seat. Uh, of course. <laughs> what, any in the well, first season? Yeah, yeah. That's part of the reason why those episodes are a couple of my favorites. You got to have luck. Right. And never again with the realization that she's murdered her boyfriend. That's true. And back um, for Christmas. And back for Christmas, yeah. It's a surprise gift. Yeah, exactly. I really think it's the show is finding its legs in the first season. I think it's still figuring out what kind of a show it wants to be. But 
what I wish we could do, and I don't know that it'll ever be possible, is get a good look at some of the other anthology shows that were on around that time to see how they compare in quality. Like there was a show called Robert Montgomery Presents that was on for years and years that just is almost impossible to find many episodes at all. And I know there were other anthologies at the time, and I think people like us and probably the people who listen to your podcast are fans of The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits and Thriller. And these are shows that just took the anthology format to a level that I don't think we see today in quality in TV shows. So the first season springs into the second season. And how does the second season compare? Are we like, now we've got it together and it's really going to take off or... I think so. I think that the second season builds on the first season and you still, because it's an anthology show, you have different types of stories. You have the harder, grittier crime stories. You have the more fanciful stories, usually written by somebody like Marion Cockrell. That's a whole other topic that sometimes the female writers write softer mystery stories than the male writers. And you have fewer stories adapted from radio and more adapted from print. And I think that the filmmaking and the way it looks on the screen gets a little crisper in the second season. I, I think you'll be pleased with it. Okay, great. All right. Anything else you want to say about season one? No, just as you pointed out, I go by the writers and I think that you start out with Francis Cockrell and Harold Swanton and Robert C. Dennis and Marion Cockrell writing the first several episodes. And these are the people who were just the backbone of the show for the first several years. And I think they just wrote really, really good quality scripts that allowed the directors in three days. I mean, these shows were shot in three days. They were able to put some very interesting stuff up on the small screen that I suspect was better than people were used to seeing on other shows, especially on film shows in the 50s. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you doing this, Jack. It's good to see you. Thank you. Um, you too. It's my pleasure. I've been very excited. Looking forward to this. Okay. Well, we'll have to do it again. I'll be listening every month. I, <laughs> I wait and watch my podcast feed for, the, for each episode to come out. So I can't wait for the next one. Very flattered to hear that. So thanks. Yeah. And I don't want to let you go, Jack, until I again recommend your blog, The Hitchcock Project, to everyone who's listening. Not only is it a great read, but it's been a tremendous benefit for me and everything I'm trying to do in my podcast. That's so good. That's why I do it. I want to learn about it and share share it with other people who are interested. I think people have gotten in the habit of watching them on MeTV and then yeah. going to the blog because I can see the page hits increase on the shows like the day after they air on MeTV. We'll get a whole bunch of hits on a certain show and I'll think, oh, that must have aired last night. Okay. And then there's one episode called A Bottle of Wine with Herbert Marshall from about maybe season four that for some reason gets massive amounts of page views. And I hmm. cannot figure out why. I don't know if people are Googling a bottle of wine to go out and buy wine and they end up on the page, <laughs> but like tens of thousands of page views for this, this episode. I have no idea. Wow. Every day, day in, day out. No kidding. Very strange. Yeah. All right. Well, it's great talking to you, Jack. Yeah, um, Thanks so much for inviting me. This was a real thrill for me. And uh, I'll see you down the line. All right. I can't wait. Okay. Good evening. Bye.
Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Good evening. Once again, you can find Jack's terrific blogs at barebonesez.blogspot.com. And his three books, along with the number of books for which he's written introductions, are available for purchase online. That was beautifully put. In fact, after hearing that, there's nothing more I wish to add. So, good night. <laughs>